Uh, this is just us checking, making sure that the chain and the free wheel are engaging well together and that you're not you're not running the chain up into the wheel and you're not running the chain off into the derailleur. It's a cold Saturday afternoon and I'm wandering around Brooklyn with a microphone thinking about cyclists. Not necessarily the two-wheeled vehicles that automobiles are now locked in a permanent jihad with, but hmm, bicycles, they're not a bad place to start. How does bicycling affect the cycles of life? Bicycling actually affects it in a positive way. It makes you it makes you a better person. You ride better. You feel better when you ride, and you know you know as much as you don't want to admit it, but you're helping the environment. So it does it does affect you in a positive way for sure. I think it relates to it simply by the fact that one is at peace with oneself and one is out with a bike, and one's spirit is just in tune with the universe, as it were. It all depends on what the individual is looking for from the experience, quite frankly. I mean, you know, uh, what's to say the person that's commuting on a day-to-day -day basis back to work is not experiencing what the high-end cyclist semi-pro pro is experiencing. I mean, all things being relative, this is what they're, this is what the experience is bringing to them in life. All my friends ride bikes, you know, even my friends that don't ride bikes, I'm friends with through the cycling world, amazingly. So I think that's the cool part, definitely. You know, it's it's so much more than a means of transportation. It really is a lifestyle. Bicycles have kept me out of the front page of the New York Post. It keeps me well balanced. Those days, you know, should you talk about biorhythms of life, well, you know, those days when one is feeling completely tense instead of, you know, kicking the dog, hitting the kids, etc. as it were, if one should do that, one goes out on the bike. And after exercising your demons, you're at peace. Exercising and exercising. So you're an angry guy without the bicycles. I think most human beings, for the most part, depend, not angry, but just the stress that one receives from life itself, you know. For me, I do all my thinking on a bike, you know, if I'm stressed out, I hop on my bike, I go on a bike ride, and it just clears your head, you know, and for me, that's my zen, you know, it's a lot of people knit or do something else, you know, for me, just biking, you know, solo bike ride, it's the best time to think, you know, you get clear, you clear, clear your mind and have all your thoughts out there. When you're on a bike, you literally spend every moment, you know, trying to be safe, trying to keep your eyes open, and anticipating other people's mistakes and I think that uh, that's what kind of opens your eyes in New York especially is that people don't pay attention here man be it the cyclists be it pedestrians be it anything everyone's in a fucking rush here and I, I would love to see New York as a whole just open their eyes you know take a moment to breathe the fresh air and try and you know just slow down a little bit be safe well the bike lanes are a start the funny thing is everyone loves the bike lanes that's the most dangerous place to be riding in New York my personal injuries have all happened riding in a bike lane. Broke my collarbone getting doored in a bike lane. You know, I've been forced out of the bike lane into traffic by NYPD police cars thousands, if not millions of times in the city. I think that in New York, the bike lane is it's an ideal that is kind of non-existent. You know, I'd love to think that it's like a completely safe habit. The honest truth is that in New York, cycling is not necessarily safe. You know, people do get injured. And ultimately, it really just comes down to, you know, you got to pay attention. Cycle. Taken from the Greek kiklos, meaning circle, wheel, any circular body. But if our lives are trapped in cycles, are we aware of it? Are we really paying attention? This week, we'll reveal how Raiders of the Lost Ark caused two teenage boys to become consumed by a relentless cycle of remaking it with the limited cinematic resources they had. We'll talk with Scottish novelist Ian Rankin about how he returned to Inspector Rebus and got caught in cycles 
he couldn't quite describe. My name is Edward Champion, and this is Follow Your Ears, Episode 3, Cycles. Well, the group was started by uh, now uh, Dean Nicholas Fagnoli. Uh, he started it about 10, 12 years ago. It took five years to cover the book, and indeed covered the book in five years, uh, which meant a vastly speed reading. That's Murray Gross, the organizer of the Finnegan's Wake Society of New York. Every month, the group gets together at a Spring Street apartment and reads aloud a page of the James Joyce cyclical masterpiece. And then they discuss the page, whatever theories they can find, for about two hours. But Murray tells me that it's important to slow down. And maybe the idea is to pace your own cycle with that of the book. When I took over the uh, group eight years ago, I'd say, uh, we're up to page 377 or 378. And even that, I think, is too fast. What starts this sort of thing, what, what leads people like myself and Nick Fagnoli, it's a disease. <laughs> it's, a, it's almost an incurable disease, but there's no question it's a disease. Uh, we spend so much time and energy on this one book, and it grips you and carries you along. That it's a compulsion, and I, uh, I would be very happy to get rid of it, I think. I don't think I can, but I, I would like to. Here's a book that should be talked out, should be uh, uh, collectively uh, uh, researched. And, and uh, so I went to the uh, first meeting, um, and uh, uh, Murray was there. And I remember uh, I made some comment, and he blasted my comment. He said, no, no, you're wrong, no, no, no. And I said, okay, well, we'll have to check this out. And, and that was the beginning of uh, about 14 years now. Of uh, Murray blasted your comments. Yes. Has he mellowed in age? Or? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. No, I mean, uh, uh, I was saying that I was bringing up some kind of, um, what do you call it, biographical information. And uh, he thought, no, that the biographical uh, analysis of, way, of the wake and of Joyce in general had been overdetermined. He wanted to stick to the uh, text and go from there. i probably not exaggerating when I say it's the highlight of my month. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I work at home, so I'm, I'm basically by myself, you know, with my kids and my family and stuff, but then I get to get out and interact, and um, this is uh, almost like a global brain here. There's so many perspectives here. Uh, I end up learning a lot every, at every meeting, just history and stuff like that. Uh, and I've gradually become more and more of a, a wake mystic. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to feel that the, the book has sort of mystical, a mystical perspective or powers almost. Um, that it's that it's it's so grandiose that even a group of very you know, smart people uh, that something swells up to 25 people at, at one meeting. Um, we're all you know, end up finding new things, and it's just. Uh, it's a, it's a whole universe of a book. It's not really a regular book. The realization is that the universe is in the drop of water and the universe is in the wake or it's in anything. Anything you apply your energy to like this will give you an infinite amount of feedback. Anything you apply your energy could throw you into a cycle, would you say? Yeah, <laughs> surely, surely. But that's, that's what's... Everything is a cycle, but it's a cycle that doesn't repeat. It's a cycle that uh, goes in a spiral. 
So it's always changing somewhat. And that's where Nietzsche was wrong with the eternal return and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's not the same. It's not the same if only on the trivial idea that the time is different. So we don't have the same repetition that happens. And that's a big difference. I'm a little more particular when I look at things and when I read things. I tend to do a closer reading of other things just because of the close reading we do of the way. The great effect of the way is the uh, you're on the key vive at all times for anything waking. No matter what you're reading, no matter what movie you're watching, and suddenly, ah, this is wake, this is it. This is what Joyce was talking about. This is, uh, this explains so-and-so. Uh, so it's that TV kind of thing. You're, you're on the alert, constantly on the alert for this. Even though you try not to be, you are. And in a way, that's good. In a way, that's good. Well, you know, don't you, Kenneth, or haven't I told you, every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing. My branch is well, I think he planned the cycles, but he planned it as a, a false clue, a red herring. Uh, you know, he talks about Vico as being very important in the book. Use it for what it's worth. And it's that, that use it for all it's worth may not be worth much, and I don't think it is worth much. It, to, to talk about cycles, that's fine, but it, it doesn't give you that much information. What Joyce was really interested in was Vico's theory about the uh, creation of language, how it grew out of metaphor, bodily metaphor. So that's really what his interest was. I think his, uh, and his intentions were there. For what it's worth, I don't give a rat's ass about Joyce's intentions. Uh, uh, he's just one critic among many for his own work. And that's the way it should be. Uh, whether he knew it or didn't know it, I don't care. So is Murray right? Are cycles a red herring? I spoke with the novelist Ian Rankin to get more answers. Rankin's latest book, Standing in Another Man's Grave, marks a surprise return to the Inspector Rebus series, which Rankin had closed out in 2007 with his 17th Rebus novel, Exit Music. But somehow, Rebus eluded retirement, and with the help of the Scottish muse, managed to cajole Malcolm Fox, the protagonist of Rankin's new series, into the author's larder. This seemed as good a time as any to press Rankin on one of his literary heroes. Anthony Pohl was Donald Westlake's favorite writer. I'm not sure if you knew that. I didn't know that. Okay. And, uh, and I know that Dance to the Music of Time is also a favorite of yours, so I'm wondering during the writing of the Rebus books if you ever had any thought of these novels as a cycle of some kind? Like, was there any moments such as the trajectory of Brian Holmes or, for example, the kind of development of Cafferty where you said to yourself, hmm, I'm actually creating a cycle along those lines? No, there, there wasn't that much forethought in it. I mean, Paul, when he planned Dance the Music of Time, saw it as a series of movements and he had, he had it structured in his head, I think, before he started. Um, and I didn't. I mean, you know, the, there was a very piecemeal approach to the Rebus series. It was never a series. The first book was meant to be a one-off, and then it was a gap until I wrote a second one. And I think it was three or four books in before I thought, well, this guy could be in for the long haul, but I've no idea how long that haul is going to be. The only thing I did know was that I wanted him to live in real time, or something approximating real time. And that's what was against me, because eventually he hit 60 and then he had to retire, because that was the retirement age for cops. 
What was important to me about reading Anthony Powell in the early days was the notion of a character who you could follow from book to book to book and characters from their life might disappear for a book or two and then come back and play a role in their life at a later date. And this happens to all of us. We all have friends and people we once knew and we bump into them again or they serve some purpose in our life at a later date. And so Paul saw life as a dance like that with partners coming and going on a dance floor for a certain amount of time, then maybe sitting the next one out, coming back again. And that was, you know, that was reassuring to me. It gave me kind of... Um, it, it meant that you know that I could approach it as a series. Eventually, eventually, I could think of it as a series with a guy who would live in real time, unlike most of the fictional cops that I knew at that time. At some point, you had to sort of plan a trajectory, I would think, during the course of writing these books. You know, was there any character who you sort of saw a couple books down the line? Well, there, there were characters who demanded to play a bigger role. So someone like Cafferty, who was invented for one cameo in book three. Rebus needed to go to Glasgow, I needed him to do something there. I thought, okay, he can be given evidence against this guy, and the guy will be this Cafferty. But he must have just got beneath my skin, and I thought, there's more I can do with you. The, um, I can see parallels with your life and Rebus's life. I can see connect, possible connections between you um, and empathies between you as well. So slowly but surely, Cafferty insinuated himself into the series. A character like Brian Holmes I thought I needed in the early books, a sidekick, a colleague, someone who could bounce ideas off Rebus and Rebus could bounce ideas off. And then I realised actually Rebus is more of a loner than that, he doesn't need this guy, so I got rid of him. And then I thought, well, Rebus is, is, is in danger of becoming uh, incredibly solipsistic uh, and inward-looking and introspective because he has no one else there to drag him out of his shell. And I had introduced Siobhan as one of his minor colleagues, um, and I thought, well, here's someone I can do something with. You know, she's younger than him, college-educated, more liberal in her thinking. She's computer-savvy. Um, she represents the kind of policing that is more general these days, and Rebus represents the kind of policing from the past that's almost extinct. Um, so she took on a bigger role. So, and sometimes in a book, a character that you've invented, thinking they'll be there for the entire book, you find you don't need. The, the book tells you, we don't need this guy. So sometimes you end up dead. That happened in uh, uh, Set in Darkness. Yes. A guy who I thought was going to be a central character was dead by page 50. So Siobhan, I mean, why not give her her own series? I mean, it seems to me that you had set this thing up to have her take over Rebus. No, I never thought... I think because I still, in my heart, I wasn't comfortable writing um, a whole book from a woman's perspective. Um, I, there's no tradition of men doing that well in fiction. There's no tradition of men writing well about women in the crime novel um, and in, in literature in general. I mean, we think nothing of the fact that P.D. James or Ruth Rendell has a, has a male hero at the centre of most of their books. But men haven't succeeded so well I mean, until my neighbour... Alexander McCall Smith came along with Mama Ramotswe and, and, you know, writes convincingly about a, a woman in an African setting. So, you know, in the early Rebus novels, there weren't many strong women characters, and then Siobhan did become a, a strong character, but I just, I'm not sure I've got the confidence to do a whole book from her perspective. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe I could do it, but I won't know until I try. Yeah, you know? well, nothing venture, nothing gained. Well, of course, if you keep these deadlines at the last minute, yeah, how that's do you, the, that's how do you, this this goes back to the idea of approaching each book as a sort of part of a cycle. I mean, I'm wondering if uh, if there are certain inevitable repetitions or invention that come from the repetitions when you're working on a book such as such as this mm. one. 
Well, I mean, there, I guess there are, there, are, there are plots or themes that you, you want to explore more fully than you've been able to do in one book, so you might bring them back for a second go. Um, I mean, there are probably very... I mean, there are themes that keep uh, recurring in my books, um, but that's something for a, little, uh, you know, a, a professor to notice rather than me. I don't always notice what's going on beneath the surface of these books. Other people read things into them that I didn't necessarily put there consciously. It doesn't mean they're not there, um, but I didn't put them there consciously. People always see political subtexts. It's kind of hard to write about Scotland in the present day without political subtext coming in because of the debate on independence um, and whether Scotland will wrench itself away from the United Kingdom. But with Set in Darkness and Flesh Market Close, I mean, there's clearly a, a political subtext to these books. Yeah. And, and there's a growing ambition of sprawl that, that actually we start to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I became more political once I was a parent and stuff. And, and when Scotland got devolution and, and it made Edinburgh a more interesting place because we had a parliament for the first time in 300 years, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't not write about that. Um, if the G8 summit comes to Scotland, of course, I've got to write about it. Um, every cop I knew in Scotland was involved with it to some extent. Um, but, you know, the, the themes, I don't know. I, you know, when I sat down to write Standing in Another Man's Grave, it wasn't a Rebus novel. The notes I had, it was on a little scrap of paper, and it was a parent who couldn't give up the search for their child, the child having disappeared a decade back, and they haunt the stretch of road where their child was last seen and get to know the road as having almost a, an ecosystem of its own. Um, so it's not just a means of getting from A to B, but there are people around there who live there, who use it, who, who nurture it and are nurtured by it. Uh, and then I thought, well, if you were the parent of a missing kid, you would keep on at the police. You know, you'd want them not to give up the search. Uh, and by now it's a cold case and I knew that's what Rebus was doing was cold cases so suddenly from having gone from this parent missing child um, and the road um, I suddenly go oh it's a Rebus novel I didn't realise it was a Rebus novel um, and then I, then I got worried because I thought well people will say you're bringing them back because you because the experiment with other characters hasn't worked or your publisher has paid you to do it or the public have made you do it and it was only because the plot and the theme needed someone like Rebus, or someone like Rebus was best suited to yeah. be the person to carry that story. Did you consider uh, making this a Malcolm Fox novel? Did the plot come first, or did it no, all spring I, I, No, I mean, what happened there, I mean, Fox wasn't going to be in it at all until quite late on in the process. And then, you know, they started to talk about changing the retirement age for uh, cops in Scotland. Uh, and I said to a cop friend of mine, well, could Rebus reapply to join? And he said, yeah, he could reapply. Uh, but he said he would be vetted by internal affairs and I went oh really well that's interesting because you know he's obviously got a some some form with them you know he's got a past so they will have lots of information about him in their in their database so suddenly I could see a place for Malcolm Fox in the book and what interested me about that was that I knew Fox I knew Rebus was the protagonist of this book therefore Fox would have to be the antagonist so we couldn't be on Fox's side if we want Rebus to rejoin the police we're obviously against Fox so he's got to be the bad guy Having spent two books with him, building him into a character that we like and we admire, suddenly he's a guy we don't like because we don't want him to stop Rebus getting back into the police. So that was challenging. So actually, I wanted to actually ask you about Fox versus Rebus. There is one chapter in this that begins with a line, Malcolm Fox's drink of choice was appetizer. <laughs> and in light of the many IPAs and the whiskeys that we've seen in the latter Rebus books in particular, to my mind, this was quite possibly the most damning description of Fox that one could imagine. 
Fox does come across, quite frankly, as a bit of a wanker here, to say the least. I mean, he invades Siobhan's privacy. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, we don't have anything about Jude or his dad or anything like that. So even if you account for the fact that the cops don't like him, there's this aspect. I mean, how um, exasperated are you by Fox, I have to ask? Or Rebus, for that matter. Do you feel that these guys kind of become wearisome, or did was this truly informed solely by Rebus's perspective? Um, well, it's not, because that, that part where we're, we're with Fox, I mean, Rebus isn't there. We're not seeing Fox through his eyes. We're seeing him through the narrator's eyes, um, which I guess is possibly me um, or Fox himself. The thing is that, uh, you know, we're setting up an opposition. Um, Fox is a n- non-functioning alcoholic, i.e. he cannot touch the sauce. Um, Rebus is a functioning alcoholic. He drinks and still is able to function. Um, and Malcolm is very jealous of that. He's very jealous of that. He's been through the days with the demon drink, and he's had to put it behind him. Um, and somehow this guy, Rebus, gets away with it. He gets away with it. He's, he's born under a lucky star. Um, and he's been getting away with stuff all his life. You know, I mean, Fox has looked at this guy, and he keeps bending the rules and bending the rules and bending them. And somehow the superiors never quite catch him or they can't be bothered or they give him a warning, but they let him carry on. Um, And this is very frustrating to Fox because, and I think this is mentioned in the earlier Fox novels. I mean, I think his dad has a go at him about this. Um, He wasn't really cut out for CID. He wasn't really cut out to be a detective. He's He's an administrator and he's a professional voyeur. He's fine sitting in a surveillance van, putting together a case for about a bent cop. Um, but, you know, a murder inquiry, stuff like that, he's not... It's not that he's not got the chops, he's not got the instincts. Rebus works by instinct. So Fox, I think, is jealous of that. And I did that in the first book as well. In the first book, he's investigating a cop who's young, charismatic, headed for the top. And, you know, Malcolm knows that's not him, and that can never be him. So there's that sort of feeling that he's good at what he does, um, but what he does isn't what he really wants to be doing. It's not just that, though. I mean, music, which is such a vital part of the Rebus universe, is almost non-existent in the Malcolm Fox universe. I mean, you have in The Impossible Dead, you've got Joe Naismith. He hummed, what a wonderful world. And then it's basically, hey, we're going to shut off the CD. So this leads me to wonder if, if we can view your entire work as a large cycle, whether working against that uh, uh, creates that kind of opposition necessary to, to maintain momentum or to maintain conflict? It's more more to, to make sure there was some clear blue water between Rebus and Fox's characters. When I was, you know, when I decided that having retired Rebus, that I still wanted to write crime novel set in Edinburgh with a cop as a central character, I thought, how can I ensure that people don't just see this as Rebus light, as, as Rebus with a different name? Um, so Fox had to be different um, temperamentally. I mean, it was good that he was a complaints cop, that he's in internal affairs, because you've got to have a very different mentality. You're the antithesis of Rebus to do that job. But then just, you know, he couldn't, have the, he couldn't listen to music because people would say, well, hang on, that's Rebus. Rebus listens to music. I should have gone the other way. Someone said to me, you, you, you know, you should have made him a musician, yeah. which would have been nice because then I could have written about music in the books. Um, well, you've had musicians before. There was one in uh, Greaves in Sudden Darkness. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I should, I should have done that, maybe. But I don't know. Anyway, I didn't. And I thought, so he can't. Rebus listens to music, so Fox can't. And Rebus smokes, so Fox can't. Rebus drinks, so Fox can't. Uh, Rebus lives in a kind of apartment in a, in a kind of student part of town, so I've taken Fox to a kind of 
more of a kind of white collar area. Um, yeah, I, I, it was just to try and make sure that I wasn't writing Rebus with a different name. Um, that was the intention to start with. But of course, once you've written about the guy, two books, and then in this new book, you start to see that there's a bit of his personality there. I actually like him. I mean, I think he's a good man, and I think he does a job that a lot of people would find thankless. Yeah. You know? And the other thing is that I discovered that this job isn't for life, that you don't go into internal affairs for the rest of your professional life, that eventually, soon, he's going to come out, and he's going to be vilified and mistrusted by everyone he works with. But here's the thing. I mean, putting him in opposition to Rebus, I mean, inevitably, I would think that uh, both Rebus and Fox are extensions of who you are or versions of who you are. So this leads me to wonder whether you can entirely escape that notion of, uh, of repetition or, or repeating certain elements over and over and whether that you should even be that concerned about resisting I, them. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is you don't, want to, you don't want to bore readers who've been with you throughout the journey. But on the other hand, if you're getting more readers every book, that's people that haven't been with you since the start of the series. There's certain information they need about these people. So how do you manage to give that information? How do you manage to repeat that information each book? without boring readers who know it all when they start the book. So there's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something you've just got to think about quite hard when you've got a series of books. You've got to think about the new reader as well as the, the existing reader. Um, and, you know, stuff like music with Rebus is a nice shorthand. It tells us quite a lot about his character without me having to kind of lay it out and explain who he is. Um, and so, yeah, and Fox's family arrangements and, and stuff in the two books I wrote about him tell us a lot about his way of thinking about family and life. And, and that was something that could, again, differentiate him from Rebus, because Rebus just ain't close to his family at all, and I wanted Malcolm to be close to his family. Uh, Rebus's parents are dead before we ever meet him. Um, in the first book, he's going to lay some flowers at his dad's grave, I think it is. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's fun to write a series because you get to spend more than a couple of hundred pages with these people and you can give them a three-dimensionality. You know, and, and as the world changes and they change by the job that they do, you can show that on the page. I mean, I've had millions of words probably to write about Rebus and to create him. Um, uh, and at the end of it, I still, there's still stuff about him I don't know, so I need to come back to him again to try and find out a little bit more and a little bit more about him to reveal himself to me. Um, but in a crime novel, people come to crime fiction sometimes for that sense that they're going to get something similar to what they got last time. They're going to get a cast of characters they know and like. They're going to get to hang out with them. The story isn't going to be radically different. It's not going to suddenly, it's not going to suddenly be a James Joyce text, you know. Um, I'm not going to suddenly set it in Bombay um, or Indiana. So the kind of, there, are, there are comforts there for the reader who returns time and again to a series. But at the same time, you don't want to bore yourself and you don't want to bore the reader. So you can't keep writing the same book over and over again. How beholden are you to those comforts? Well, I mean, I appreciate why people do it. I appreciate that there's something in crime fiction that, that a lot of readers get, which is, which is the, the satisfaction that all your questions are answered and all the loose ends are tied up. And so it becomes a, a closed system. But that's often why crime fiction hasn't been taken seriously as literature, is because that closed system is quite unrealistic. And I do like to leave loose ends trailing and things that aren't quite summed up and aren't quite explained. And even though Rebus might get his man, he does it for the wrong reasons, or he is implicated somehow, he is tarnished somehow um, in the course of doing that. So that you're not getting this neat, closed world 
because um, the real world is messy. And I appreciate that people come to crime fiction because it isn't messy and because they will get the satisfaction of a puzzle that is solved, a question that is answered. Um, and this weird thing that we do with the readers, that readers and, and writers do, where we pretend that our characters are in danger. I mean, you know if, you're, if there's 18 books in the series and you're reading book five, you know the guy doesn't die, Rebus doesn't die at the end. Yeah. And yet somehow you manage to allow yourself to forget that so that if he is put in peril, you allow yourself to feel that he is imperiled and you're, you're still, you know, rolling along. I think that's really interesting that people can actually push that to one side. How does something like a geographical element, in this case, the A9 motorway, uh, which seemed to get a lot of, I mean, I don't think there will be any book written with, which features the A9 so probably, no. and yet well, in, a, in a weird homicidal capacity, too. I, no, uh, but you know, by strange coincidence, Skyfall, the new James Bond, that's right. the A9 is in that's there. That's the A9. Yeah, that's where his ancestral home is. Yeah, Wow. I, I didn't realize that was that. the A9. I, I didn't know either until somebody said to me, have you seen Skyfall yet? I said, no. He said, they drive up the A9. I went, no way. They said, yeah, James Bond's ancestral home is just off the A9 road. So there's shots of him driving up that road that Rebus drove up. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, How weird is that? Yeah, that's fantastic. The thing about I mean, it could have been any road anywhere. Um, but what I wanted to do was well, several things. One was to get Rebus out of his comfort zone, to say to him, look, there's another Scotland out there that you won't really understand and you've not looked at. Let's get you out of your narrow confines of the central belt, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Let's take you up to a different Scotland. Um, and I was, I was up and down that road a lot because at the end of it is the Black Isle, which is a part of Scotland I really like and I spend a lot of time there. And I was getting to know the road. I was getting to know its foibles, its personality. It was no longer just a way of getting from A to B. Now, most of us, when we use roads, use them as a means of getting from A to B. And we don't think about them having an organic life of their own, but they do. So in this book, Rebus is allowed to meet people, you know, people who work in service stations, uh, tourists and, and travellers and the road crew. walkers, the road crew working away at it, the, um, uh, the people that are serving them gas in the service station who smile at him because they saw him a week ago, um, the kind of travelling salesman that he meets at the, at the petrol sta- at the gas station. Um, and you start to get a sense that they've all got a different interpretation of this, this place. And also this amazing thing that if you were to walk 50 yards from that road, you might be walking where nobody's walked in 100 or 200 years because it's wilderness. How does re-exploring a particular strip of geography reinvigorate cyclical elements in Rebus or in anything else? Well, it can he run, it, it, what it does is, is draw a line right down the middle of this. I mean, in the series, he's gone to various places. He's gone to Glasgow, didn't like it, didn't understand it. Aberdeen, didn't like it, didn't understand it. Um, but an awful lot of Scotland isn't city. An awful lot of the geography of Scotland is wilderness. Um, and when you get up to the Highlands, and now it's only going to take him, from Edinburgh, it would take him three or four hours to drive up to the Highlands of Scotland. And suddenly he's in a part of the world where he could drive for four hours and never pass another car. Um, and where he feels completely alienated from the landscape. And uh, he's further away, I think he says at one point, further away from a bar than he's ever been in his life. Yeah. Um, it may not be true, but he certainly felt that. And I felt it when I drove that stretch of road. And I know that because I had a tape recorder in my hand while I drove, and I would just say my thoughts aloud into the tape recorder. And then most of them I gave to Rebus during that, that journey. I think what I liked was to get him out of that comfort zone and not to be writing predominantly about Edinburgh. Um, and some people in Scotland were surprised by that. In the UK, some people were surprised by that. They said at this particular moment in time, as Scotland readies for a, a referendum on independence, shouldn't that be the focus of your, your writing? And he said, well, no, the focus of your writing should be whatever hell story wants to be told this, you know, this week or this year. Um, 
But there's also the, the other reason for writing about the A9 in particular was that, you know, at the far end of it is a part of the world I really like, and this was a great excuse to keep going up there. I think about halfway through the book, Rebus has the encounter with a bouncer, and he says, here's a word of advice, young lad. Never get into a fight you can't win. And I thought that was funny, but then I thought it was especially funny because later in the book, you have Rebus getting into a couple of fights, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy is in his fucking 60s, right? Yeah, no. I mean, you know... That's, that's why, that's why the, the fights are not long uh, and not especially physical. But it leads me to ask you whether, in the case of Rebus, or perhaps even in the case of Fox, whether personality trumps age in, when you're caught in the cycle, when you're uh, coming up with a new story that's beholden, in some sense, to audience comforts yeah. or whatnot. Well, I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind when I was writing this book, I was aware that I was writing about a guy in his 60s. And therefore, the fight he has with a guy who's not that much younger than him, a little bit younger than him, is a bit, just a bit of a tussle and a push and, and a grazing of knuckles and a falling over and a trip. And then they get up and they're panting. And so it lasts about 25, 30 seconds, I would guess, at which point they're exhausted. And they need to go upstairs and just talk about things because they know that they aren't able to sustain a fight anymore. Um, and, you know, Rebus is, is a guy who knows he can't chase suspects. You know, he's, they're going to they're lose him if he chases them. He's got to use his wits, his guile more than ever. So the words are still there. I mean, that, him, him saying to that young bouncer, you know, don't get in a fight, you can't win. Those guys would have demolished Rebus. <laughs> There's no doubt about it in my mind. Um, and Malcolm Fox, even less so. I mean, he's not the physical type. I mean, Rebus in the past has been a bruiser and a battler, but Malcolm is someone who's, who's you know, as a professional voyeur, he's more of a George Smiley figure. You know, he's a professional spy within the police. Uh, violence isn't his thing. I would think it would make him sick to the pit of his stomach, where Rebus is a man who in the past has lived by and for violence. Um, but he knows now that he's at an age and a stage of his life where he can't do it. And same with Cafferty. You know, Cafferty, when he's threatened by a younger, leaner, hungrier, more venal gangster figure, hasn't got the fight. Yeah. You know? He's not going to admit it to anyone. Yeah. But well, he just hasn't got the physical fight. This leads me to wonder if all of the violence or the physicality has almost been pushed to the margins by writing Rebus novel after Rebus novel after Fox novel after Fox novel after sure. Rebus novel. Whether this is something that was inevitable when you're dealing with physicality or being brutal or being a maverick yeah. that we haven't gotten into, uh, you know, inevitably, inevitably things start to get pushed for, I suppose, the pudgy mass. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's more to it than that, I think, and that's that, you know... This notion of the kind of the violence in crime fiction, um, especially see it in Hollywood movies, right? It, it, in real life, it's hard to believe it is. You know, I mean, the, the cops I meet have had a few rumbles in the past. You know, there might have been a suspect who fell down the stairs at the police station. Um, but it's much harder to get away with that. I mean, that would happen in the 60s or 70s, maybe into the early 80s. But the police became much more aware that they were being watched. Um, and the public, because of things like cell phones and the ability to get on internet and on social media, you can get the story out there very quickly. Um, and so the police operate in a way now that they wouldn't then. So Rebus's way of policing from the first novel, which was set in the mid 80s, he couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. He couldn't. He wouldn't be able to get away with it, and he wouldn't. He probably wouldn't feel like doing it. You know, I doubt he would push a suspect down the stairs these days. Black and Blue, where he shoves a suspect off a chair in the interview room. I remember when I wrote that book and it was published, a good cop friend of mine in Edinburgh said, Ian, that's the least realistic thing you've written. He said, that would have happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It would not happen now. 
It just wouldn't happen. And he was a bit annoyed with me for putting it in. Uh, um, and so I'm conscious of that as well. That I'm trying to keep these books realistic. And so the violence quotient can't be upped. Because in real life it's actually... You know, this, the UK is safer than it's ever been. Yeah. The, the, fear, the fear of crime is much greater than the actual figures, the, the statistics. Uh, would, would have you think, you know, why would you be afraid of crime? Almost nobody's going to encounter crime in their life. What kind of momentum do you get from writing... 2,000 words a day or by, oh, I've got to go ahead and beat this deadline in June or whatever when you're on tour right now. I mean, you know, that's, that's a fairly prodigious uh, workload on your part or yeah. writing, it, writing it fast. I mean, well, you know, I, what, comes, what comes from that? Is, is there panic. Any- panic comes from that, I would say. Panic and adrenaline. Fear, adrenaline. It all helps move the plot along. It helps move the story along. When I write the first draft, it might take me a long time to mull over a story, and then when I start writing it, the first draft is written very quickly. It's written in about 40, 50 days. And then, but it's very loose and ragged and, and baggy and, and everything. And then, you know, but I've got something. I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got an A to Z. I've got, you know, a start and an end. And I can polish it. You know, I can change it and make it look as though it was always meant to come out like, like this. And any gaps can be filled in at a later date. Um... But this, this time I've left it, it's just ridiculously late because, the, you know, there was a lot of media interest in, in the new Rebus coming back. So I seem to have been selling this book since about June. Yeah, it was about June last year when I announced to the world that it was going to be Rebus, and it was at a literary festival. And then the BBC documentary crew started following me around to, to, to follow me while I wrote the book. Really? And, yeah, and they made were they wa- over your shoulder when you were writing? Not all the time, but a little bit. Like when I, when I wrote the first words they were watching. Um, but they left a little camera with me and I just filmed myself when I was doing interesting stuff. And when I went to do the research up north, they came with me and filmed me. You know, I interviewed my wife and she brought up the problem of page 65. She said, Ian always has trouble around page 65. He's got all these notes and ideas and by the time he gets to page 65, he's used them all up. And after that, he's just flying by the seat of his pants. And the number of writers who came up to me and said, same thing. I've got tons of notes, and they're all used up by page 65, and then I start to worry. So do you need that kind of panic or nervousness? I think so, but this is leaving it far too late this year, because as I was trying to explain, I did all this, the, the media, and the book came out early November, and I toured Australia, toured New Zealand, then did the UK tour, took Christmas off, I was shattered, then pretty much straight away, the American tour. I'm not going to get back to the UK till the 2nd or 3rd of February. That's... a a month behind. And usually when I start writing, I start writing around about the 2nd of January. So mm. October, November, December are thinking and planning. Uh, January I usually start writing. Well, the deadline hasn't changed. The deadline is still the end of June. So if I'm going to start writing a book beginning of February and deliver it at the end of June, I'm really going to... I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. You said that to me last time we talked. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's funny, that's what my publisher said. I said to my publisher, how do you expect me to do this? And he said, you'll just, you'll do it. <laughs> you'll Have do you it. ever not done it? No, I've always hit deadline. I hate letting people down. So I always seem to hit the deadline. Well, I mean, you know, touch wood, I'm going to hit my head. It's the first time for everything, you know. Um, so you still exist in a paddock even though you've yeah. successfully done it multiple yeah, times. I still don't know what I'm doing, you know. I mean, that's the, I think that's the basic um, theme of this uh, um, documentary that I made which is that I haven't written 18 books, well, more than 18 books, 18 Rebus books. I still don't really know what I'm doing. I wish I did. It'd be a lot easier. Is there any sense of um, comfort that comes from that uncertainty at all? Or? 
I don't know. It's always worked for me in the past. I mean, you know, people say to me, Owen, can you do creative writing classes? Can you teach it? I said, no, I can't because I just, what would the lesson be? The lesson I would say is just make it up as you go along. It'll be okay. It's always been okay for me. But my way of doing it isn't necessarily going to work for anybody else and it might not be okay when those people, you know, work in the way I do where I just trust to the muse. I trust that all these things, all these loose ends will be tied up at the end or characters will, you know, become useful to me or uh, I'll find out who the killer was before the end of the book. I was 20, 30 pages from the end of this book before I worked out who it was, (laughs) who the killer was. But maybe working things out doesn't involve cycles at all. Maybe it all starts at the beginning. There's a part of me that longs for that kind of life where um, I remember reading a book once, I think it was out of Africa, where she talks about a child, um, first of all, squatting by the side of the road waiting for, you know, the 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 cows or the the goats or something to come down the road. So the idea that a child could squat also at such a physically demanding position and that they could just watch, you know, they don't have a clock they're just going sort of by the seasons and they are um, just observing and very much in the moment and also very peaceful and quiet there's nothing they're not they don't feel the need to be distracted so there's something really lovely about that and yeah so I I do sort of I do have that sense of um, looking at time and making people hyper aware of time am I doing a disservice to people that's Leslie Alderman And what Leslie's talking about is her new book, The Book of Times, a collection of time-related data that will make you more conscious of the clock than Christian Marklet. Obviously, I wrote this book for a reason. I'm I'm very conscious and hyper-aware of time. I mean, I'm the kid who came home from school and wrote my schedule on the blackboard. You know, and I think I just grew up in a sort of chaotic environment. It was my way of making sense of things. What time is it now? 10.15. But being very aware of the time doesn't mean you can't find enticing new cycles hiding behind the corners of your complex existence. I did create a certain amount of structure. Like, I left my job with a a contract to work for the magazine I'd left. So I sort of had this, it was a very slow weaning off the structure thing. But then I, I, you know, I got a dog (laughs) because partly I was a little lonely. I also have a child and I thought it'd be fun for him to have a dog. But that created huge structure for my life. I mean, I'm not joking when I say he kind of, you know, keeps me on track. It's like time to go out, time to take a walk, time to socialize. So all of a sudden there's this little alarm going off in in my life so that I'm not just roaming around sitting at my computer um uh you know in a writer's haze waiting for cocktail hour so the dog actually creates new moments that you can split up your daily time with right it creates but I think I got better about being more in the flow and um and maybe I was better I became better at dealing with large chunks of time that I had to structure myself So I probably developed a new muscle. But if you have a good cyclical muscle, how do you use it? There's the old time versus money dichotomy. There's also the time versus experience dichotomy. You trade off one to get more of the other. The question I have is, do you think that presenting a lot of data or a lot of information like this will cause people to change the way that they make decisions if they are more aware of the time, especially when it's reduced to a single number in a table? that they might actually shortchange themselves of some really amazing experience that they might have if they were to wear the tie. Um, I think you're focusing a lot on all the tables in there. I can tell you're having an, an emotional reaction to the tables, but I don't really... I like the tables, just to be clear on this. Okay. Um, I don't... Like, one of my favorite parts of the book, or that is my favorite today, is... Um, uh, a study that was done called If Money Can't 
buy you happiness, try time. And so, you know, these these academics looked at this issue that, which we're all pretty well aware of now that, you know, actually rich people are slightly happier than poor people. Let's face it, it's easier, but they're not way happier. They still have all the same problems humans have. They cheat on their spouses. They are mean. People don't like them, whatever, all that sort of stuff. Money can't help with that, those sorts of things. But you have a lot more control over your time than you do over your money. So, they said, you know, really, this is a way to actually affect your life. Like, spend time with the people that you really like. Spend time experiences that count, that, that last. You know, I mean, it's a very cliched example, but if you go shopping, you buy something, it's fun, but you're probably going to become bored with it. But if you go on a, you know, wild flaneur kind of walk in, with a friend into some uncharted territory of Brooklyn, you're probably going to remember it forever, which is why, you know, a lot of families spend money on vacations and to exotic places and, and don't send their kids to private school or they make those sort of choices. So I, I think that's one of the beautiful aspects of um, considering time is that you really have an enormous amount of control over your time. And even if it's deciding whether you want to work in a high-paying job or a low-paying job or a, if you want to sleep eight hours or sleep four hours or if you want to watch TV or play a board game, and I'm not judging anyone on any of those things. But you, that is one thing where you have a lot of control. And I think that, especially in this culture, we get very caught up in money, and that that's so important and so important for our children. And and we need to just keep amassing it, amassing it at all costs. And the data just isn't really there. Or I don't want to use the word data. The The facts just don't speak to that being so. So you look at some of the countries that have high happiness ratings don't have high GDP. And it's a different, you know, it's a, it's a different culture. It's a different take on, on what's important. Some kids go to summer camp. Some kids go to, you know, music camp or they have some kind of theater camp or something like this. This was really it for them. It was 1982 and three 12-year-olds in Mississippi decided to remake Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was before the internet, before the movie had even been released on VHS. These kids had to hustle. What they did not know was that their ambitious project would take up their next seven summers. They would grow up making this movie. To me, it was almost like a home movie of their childhoods. That's Alan Eisenstock, the author of Raiders, a new book documenting the remake. When I read the article in Vanity Fair, which is what got me into, uh, you know, very interested in writing the book about it, I was really excited to write the movie, the story of the movie and how they made the movie, but even more so, as I said, it was more about the chronicle of their childhood, how two people could remain friends for 30 years, the ups and downs of their friendship, um, and also I was fascinated by the question, what happens when you peak in childhood, in, in high school? Like, what if the best thing you did was in high school. What happens in the next 20 to 30 years of your life? I, I think in the beginning, it, it really, um, we were both so inspired by Raiders, and I, I think Eric and I both had different uh, intentions in the beginning. I mean, we both wanted to remake Raiders. For me, it was more of a role-playing thing. You know, I was a, I was a young boy, uh, very excited by the character of Indiana Jones, and for me, it was simply kind of playing out a fantasy. That's Chris Strompolis, one of the kids who made the Raiders remake 30 years ago. He played Indiana Jones 
Williams, and his friend Eric Zala was on tech duty. And then I met Eric after buying the Kasdan script, and we kind of got together, and then sort of made the agreement early on, we're going to stick to what they already did, and, and try to emulate to the best of our ability what was already created. And so I, I think there was a conscious effort to kind of stick to raiders, you know, and, and be true to it, you know, as much as possible. So there, there are moments, of course, in our movie where we had to riff just because of resources and necessity and, you know, there's, there's some humorous moments. Otherwise, we, we kind of, you know, took ourselves fairly seriously, you know. The dog in the monkey's position was quite a shock. Right, exactly, yeah, you know, yeah. and substituting but it, things. it must not have been easy to find a monkey in Mississippi. Yeah, there was a shortage of spider monkeys in Mississippi yeah. in the 80s for some reason. I, I don't know, you know. Yeah. So. How much of this is something of a cycle for you. I mean, you watch this film in full. We see you and all the other kids grow up in real time. At the very beginning, you're slathering Vaseline on your face and sprinkling ash for the stubble. At the end, you've got real stubble. I mean, this to me is very much a sort of stage of life. And here you are now into your adult years. You're touring around with the film intermittently. How much does revisiting the cycle... I mean, do you find yourself caught in any kind of trap here, or in a loop? Or? It is, it is, and, and I'm, that word is so perfectly uh, used now. The, you know, like, the, it's, it is a cycle, you know, and it is, Eric always jokes that, you know, it's, if there was a documentary uh, about us remaking Raiders, it, it would be, like, one of the most sort of cyclical, self-referential sort of docs, you know, it's like the making of, the, the, of the making of, of the making of, and, 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 you know, when the film got rediscovered, it's, it's brought us back together and it's brought us through a different cycle. You know, it's brought us through uh, a different sort of rites of passage uh, in our adult life and back to the thing that we are most passionate about, which is film and creativity and, and, um, and you know, my friendship with Eric and, and all those sorts of things. So it is incredibly cyclical, but with each new cycle, it seems to kind of refresh and excite and, and still kind of opens my eyes. I mean, even though we're showing our movie over and over again, I don't really ever get tired of it because I, I feel like I keep learning new things and new opportunities open up and new people and new conversations. And you know. But is remaking a film enough to keep a friendship going? If it weren't for the movie, would they be friends at all? And I'm not sure if they would be. They have certain things in common, but they're very different people. I think that certainly to begin a friendship, we all need something in common. We all, whether, you know, some, it's not just you look great, I look great, I think the two of us should be friends. I mean, there's some kind of, don't you think there's some sort of external connection that drives all friendships, at least in the beginning? Do you find yourself revisiting some of the pain that occurred near the end of this? I mean, you know, the book describes how you are about to go ahead and do the sound mix, and in one evening you slap together a bunch of really rough uh, music cues and, and sound effects and leave a note, and that's it. I don't want to have any part of this anymore. Finally, fatigue had set in after all these years. Yeah. Well... I think there's probably a tendency to, to, to feel that and, and retrace the footsteps of, you know, dysfunction or pain or awkwardness and the things that, you know, uh, you stumbled upon as a child, you know, things that, you know, made you, uh, you know, that broke you, that, you know, shaped you in a different way. I think I've gotten over a lot of that um, because of this uh, resurgence of interest in our, in our little movie, you know. There was a whole 
chapter of my life where I was actually embarrassed about Raiders, you know, yeah. and, and the whole thing and, and making it and all that. And it was really only through people watching it and, and crowding into a theater and, and appreciating it that I was able to re-experience in a cyclical way, you know, that joyful kind of um, appreciation that other people were having with our movie. And I think with that, it was, um, you know, allowed me to sort of get over a lot of things, heal in a lot of ways. When you were making the film, I mean, you were shooting this mostly in sequence, and it was only calamities during the production process that forced you to shoot out of sequence. So it's almost as if you and Eric intuitively knew, even in your teenage years, that you had to actually recreated in sequence. And, I, and I'm wondering how much this tripped you up and, and what steps you took to get back into the cycle, so to speak, of remaking Raiders shot by shot and why you felt that it had to be done in this sort of linear fashion. Well, I think, you know, I think it's, it's we would have liked to have shot it in sequence, but, you know, it's necessity and, and preparedness and us being knowledgeable and, and just going through intense learning curves required us to shoot everything out of sequence, you know, and we would shoot stuff over and over and over again as we were learning. I mean, you know, the first handful of years, it was just unwatchable. I mean, it was like, it was just so unwatchably bad. We had yeah. to scrap everything and recast people and get better with the sets and get better with the shots. And we were teaching ourselves everything organically. So, you know, by the very nature of doing that, we were at different stages, you know, and some things, some locations weren't found yet. Some people weren't cast yet. Some things weren't built yet. You know, we had no idea where do we get a submarine? Where do we find an airplane? Where do we find, you know, all these sorts of things. So there was a lot of searching and, and, um, and looking before we could actually shoot things. And so by the very nature of that, the shooting process was staggered. I mean, obviously it would have been wonderful to shoot in sequence, but virtually impossible. How did you get your hands on the Nazi flags and swastika armbands? There's one <laughs> shot where there's three Nazi flags in the same shot, and I'm like, wow, that's exceptionally resourceful for teenagers. I mean, what did you do? I mean, how did you get this? Did you have someone else get this, or was it just plentiful white power? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, imagine all, all these sort of kids, you know, going out there and finding all this, like, Nazi memorabilia yeah. somehow. Uh, the truth be told, we actually made everything from scratch. You made those stuff yeah, from scratch. Yeah, we, wow. we, Eric refined his sewing skills and, you know, and I, I my grandfather... Good cross-stitch pattern. <laughs> right. My, my grandfather was a bit of a pack rat, so, and he was in the uh, restaurant business, and so he had boxes and boxes of, um, like unopened red tablecloths jammed in the garage. And so um, I just kind of asked him if I could have all those, and he agreed. And we um, cut those up and used some bed sheets and, and, uh, and black felt. And uh, Eric was a much better artist than I was. He wanted to be a, a, a cartoonist, and, um, or a comic book artist, rather. And uh, he, we cut everything out, and he hand-sewed all this Nazi stuff, armbands and flags and... You know, he did the, uh, you know, it was a, an awkward experience driving down the Mississippi Gulf Coast with the, with the crate, you know. The, the, Getting pulled over or the, something. With the Nazi crate sort of strapped to the top of my mom's minivan, you know, and it's, it's got the sort of Nazi eagle, you know, uh, and we were just transporting it to location to shoot, and, and man, the looks we got, let me tell you. What but about we, the uniforms? Uh, a similar situation? Boy or? Scout uniforms. We went uh -huh. to... We went to um, uh, goodwill, and we went to um, uh, you know uh, all the sort of you know used clothing stores, and basically used Boy Scout uniforms and transformed them into into Nazi uniforms. <laughs> but was all the fun and youthful ingenuity a mask? Did Chris and Eric lose something of themselves in surrendering to the cycle? Chris and Eric used the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark 
to escape from their own lives. Their personal lives were very difficult at the time. There were financial issues. There were personal problems in terms of, um, you know, uh, relationships. Chris uh, was dealing with his mom remarrying. Uh, Eric's father got a, you know, they got a divorce and Eric's father left them so that this became their escape. Their actual making of this movie was their escape. We had our conflicts and we had our, you know, fallings out and 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 um, and towards the end, I mean, it was one of the most anticlimactic raps, you know. Uh, I, I think the last shot was me strapped to the pole with Angela, and that was the last shot. And we and Eric had imagined this sort of celebratory champagne flowing kind of moment. Yeah. Woo! You know, seven years of shooting, and it was like, I think my first reaction is. Now, I have, now we have to edit this fucking thing. Can a cycle of remaking begin a new cycle of remaking? I put forth the idea to Chris. Do you think we should have another group of kids start off on another remake so that the cycle here can continue? Well, I think there's a lot of other kids out there doing it. I mean, there's, you know... You've the, heard from people who are doing this? Well, I mean, not Raiders, but, yeah. you know, but kids that are, you know, having their go at Lord of the Rings yeah. or a Batman remake or... What, whatever turns them on, you know, but, but that sort of role-playing and, and, um, and going into a, a fantastical world, and, and I don't know if anybody has done it as extensively as we have, yeah. or as obsessed, you know, as sort of like done every single shot or whatever, you know, um, but there's, you know, the fan film genre certainly is now, seems to be an established little niche, you know. But do you think the internet has killed the sort of exploratory impulse to fit the missing pieces. I mean, you did go into a movie theater with a tape recorder and record the audio track, and I presume some of that actually ended up in the final mix. Absolutely, it yeah. did. I, I think the, the, the advent of the digital age and all the tools that come bundled in our cute little laptops that we get, you know, I think gives the, um, gives the perception to young people that they have ev everything that they need in front of them at, at the click of a mouse to make a movie. And, and I think those, you know, we lecture on film, and I think all those things are, are wonderful tools. But, you know, fact of the matter is, is that you still, no matter what, you have to go out there and learn to be resourceful. You have to learn to thicken your skin and be able to take, you know, not take no for an answer. You have to go out there and, and forge ahead through impossible situations and get what you want and make things happen. That's our show for this week. Tune in next week when we devote our attention to the complexities of aid, from activists in Staten Island to problems in post-earthquake Haiti. Why is it so difficult to help people who need it? Find out in episode four. Until next week, we encourage you to follow your ears. You never know what little nuggets you might pick up. Our thanks to Fulton Bikes, RNA Cycles, Brooklyn Cycle Works, Murray Gross and the Finnegan's Wake Society of New York, Ian Rankin, Leslie Alderman, Alan Eisenstock, and Chris Strompolis. And don't forget to visit our website at followyourears.com for all our episodes. Remember, follow your ears. Curiosity is too essential to existence to ignore. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.